0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum?
1: Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony.
0: And I'm Maggie.
1: And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you've while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that, too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads.
0: Hello, world! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. And I'm Harmony. And this week we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Tara Green, who's going to talk about her book, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Tara, thank you so much for joining us. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the book? Yes.
2: Well, I am department chair at the University of Houston, Department of the African American Studies, which is fairly new in departmental status. So I'm really happy about that. And I was raised in the suburbs of New Orleans. And I got my Ph.D. from LSU and have been teaching at several, I have taught at several different universities for 22 years now. And so you asked a little bit about the book. Well, it is inspired by my upbringing in the New Orleans area. Alice Dunbar Nelson is from New Orleans. She was born there in 1875. And... I would learn about her work when I was a college student at Dillard University, and she was an alumna of Strait University, which would combine with another institution to become Dillard University. And I just became intrigued with her, and as an English professor, would kind of follow through on some questions that I had about her life, and the result of that is the book.
1: Congratulations on becoming chair. Is that new or is the department new? Both. So, okay, well, congratulations. <laughs> the department is new and I'm a new chair. Thank you. Um, And thank you for giving us a, a little bit of perspective on what inspired you to write this book. Alice Dunbar Nelson is a new figure to me, I think because in schools we learn so little about African-American history in general, but particularly I find that I've learned very little in this time period and era, especially from a woman's perspective. And we were wondering how you, you alluded to this a little bit already because you talked about how you learned about her throughout your classes in college. But can you give us a snapshot of what your research process was like and specifically how you came to discover Alice? We know that you worked a little closely with the Archive of the University of Delaware to write this book, and we're just curious about how, what the research process in general was like.
2: Yeah, well, you know, researchers start with a question. And my question was, why did Alice Dunbar Nelson, a woman that I thought was Creole, why did she leave New Orleans? Because I knew that she had been married to Paul Lawrence Dunbar and that that the time that they were together was not in New Orleans. So why would she leave New Orleans where she had a kind of privilege as a Creole woman in that city? And this is really the answer to that question because there are several questions in there. One is, was she Creole? Two is, why did she leave New Orleans? And three, how in the world did she learn about Paul Lawrence Dunbar and become connected to someone who had no connection to that part of the country. And so, of course, that would lead to other questions. And the place where I went was the University of Delaware because her niece, who was a librarian, I always say, yay librarians, she kept these materials that this woman was, I guess, a kind of hoarder. But she thought that her life was interesting enough that she did not throw away her letters that she had written and received from some key individuals, letters of rejection sometimes, some, some works that she had written but had not been published, but other work that she had published in various iterations, and, of course, her diaries that she had kept over a period of years. And I was able to answer some of those questions, and then to learn that there was so much about her that I just simply did not know. And there were historical movements and moments that she had been involved with. For example, the suffrage movement. I didn't know much about that from a Black woman's perspective, but just seeing what she did to contribute to the ratification of the 19th Amendment meant that I learned much about what women did to work together, or or in some cases, work against each other to get that put in place for our country.
0: Thank you for sharing a little bit about your process there. I was really intrigued by this book because my training is in 19th century literature, but in practice, professionally, I'm a historian now. So this book for me was kind of that, that perfect blending of the two of literary analysis along with kind of historical context. One of the things that I was really interested in in the book is that one of our core tenets here at Rebel Girls Book Club is that we believe that writing is, or at least can be, an act of resistance. And so I was wondering what role you thought Alice's writing played in her life and how writing played into the larger Black feminist movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
2: So to take the first part of that, what was how was she a rebel in terms of her writing to get back to this podcast? She wrote in many different genres. So that was part of the way in which she could engage with the politics of the time. And those politics may have been how children were treated. She wrote quite a bit about children, even though she did not have any children, but she was an educator. She wrote about Politics, And so it may have been asking questions about women's roles in various ways, but also the ways in which black people were being treated at the time. And so her editorials and her short stories were the two where we see her really sort of digging into the politics of the era and making her voice known because her editorials tended to be published in black newspapers, which were very important during that time. But also her short stories, she tried to get a wider audience for those. So sometimes she succeeded and sometimes she failed. So those are the two places where we see her really being successful and showing her talents as a writer. And so some people would push back on that language. I can remember one of the reviewers saying, well, there was no feminist. The word feminist wasn't used during that era, right? So when do we start using that language and, and, and really feeling comfortable with it? I certainly do argue very early in the book that she was an early Black feminist, and it doesn't matter to me whether or not the word was used. We can see that she was a woman, as many Black women of the Black Club Women's Movement were, but they, they were women who weren't a part of the Black Club Women's Movement, who insisted in some way that they have a voice, that they were... Not placed into roles that society said that they had to be placed in, in terms of jobs that they chose or what their relationships would be with other people, whether they were romantic or not. So we see her in her life's practice, as well as her work, questioning and pushing back, but yet navigating because respectability was really important to her. So in some ways, it becomes how then does she define respectability and still live a life that she had the right to live, quite frankly, which is to define whatever that life was.
1: That was a great answer. I really want to get into our questions on respectability, but I'm going to back up first here for a second. You mentioned how important Black newspapers were during this time period. And that's featured all throughout this book, and especially as you're cataloging Alice's work. And we were wondering how writing can be used as a tool of resistance in general, I guess, and how we can continue to use it as a tool of resistance today in the 21st century.
2: Well, I think the, in the same ways in which she did. So let's look at what she wrote. So again, the short fiction. So if we look at her very earliest short fiction in the late 1800s, where Little Miss Sophie, for example, which is about a Creole woman of color, a Creole woman of African ancestry, who is who finds her, her former lover, who is a white man, is going to marry, and the only way in which he can do that is to prove himself as being an heir if he produces a ring that he had given to Little Miss Sophie. So there are all of these questions that come out of that. Now, I'm not going to be the professor and go into all of them, but one of the questions that comes out of that is, what does that mean for Little Miss Sophie? So a woman who has had a sexual relationship with a man who is white that could not go anywhere because of society and its, its ideals about a white man being married to a woman of color, what are her choices? How does she push back and live within a society that says that she isn't worthy and so this becomes really important. It's not just about a woman of color, but it's also about any woman who has perhaps made a choice to be with a man. And that man, because he is a man, can make different choices and leave her behind. So that's what her short stories do. But then she could take another approach to that when she's writing either an article for one of the newspapers like the women's era Or she's writing an editorial later on about lynchings, for example. Or when she was writing from the women's era, it may have been about the celebration of something that had happened in the local black community of New Orleans. And so these are all of the ways, just a few ways, really, because she was also a playwright. And she, was also, she also wrote song lyrics. So we see all of that happening in society now where people use their gift for writing. And they may even collaborate with someone else. And they have something to say. And it may, be, it may come out in the form of a blog. Or it may come out in a book that has been published. Or it could be a newspaper. We still see all of these things happening in the 21st century.
0: Thank you so much for expanding on that. You touched on so many themes that are really prevalent in the book and that we're excited to dive into a little later in the interview. I want to make sure that our terminology is grounded for our listeners. So I was wondering, one of the main themes to me that this book explores is kind of the tension between the social aspect of Victorian respectability, which Alice is really respects essentially and and likes to use as a tool in her activism work but then also the way that Victorian sensibilities Victorian respectability kind of intersects and creates moments of tension with classism and feminism and her queerness so i was wondering if you could describe what that victorian respectability means for our listeners to get us started on digging into some of these moments of tension that we see in her personal versus public life.
2: So I use Evelyn Brooks Hickenbotham's ideas of respectability, the politics of respectability, where really if I just kind of strip away some of it, it's how these women say that they're going to define themselves in a society and that respectability involves how they have a public performance and then how they live their private lives. And it's that public and that private that I find to be the most interesting, especially when looking at Alice Dunbar Nelson, because how Black women perform in public as women who are demanding respect by the ways in which they perform in public, may not necessarily be what people would expect that they are doing in private. And so her public life and her private life are so very different. From there, we can see the emergence of a Black feminist practice With Alice Dunbar Nelson, because as you talked about this intersectionality, the queerness, her her identity as a woman who was married three times to men, but who was also in same sex relationships, does not necessarily jive with, if you will, the public persona that she has, because those relationships with women were quite private.
1: So I, I apologize for not being able to recall off the top of my head, but is there any writing slash do we have any insight about how she feels about this hiding of her sexuality and her relationships of all forms, I guess, queer and, and, and hetero? Because she also has affairs with men while she's married as well hmm. Well, we know she
2: had a she had an affair with at least one man. So <laughs> there's possibly another, but I can confirm that there is at least one. So how does she feel about that? There is no evidence that I'm aware of that she took a public stance or even a private stance against homosexuality, because, of course, the, it was just Dangerous if people knew because there were laws. So there's no evidence of that. What she does push really in references that we see in her diary in particular and in an essay that I talk about in the very first couple of pages of the book is there was a fear around being known as a lesbian. So she actually uses that word. And secrecy is part of that public performance, because if, if someone may have some questions about family, these things were so important during this, this late Victorian age. I mean, it's just, it's just odd when we think about it now because people go digging around in Ancestry.com and that kind of thing to find out the the good, the bad, and the ugly about family histories. But these were not things that people really, certain people may not have wanted people to know about their backgrounds, their their ancestry, or their who they were, were related to or who they were not related to. So those were the kinds of things that in terms of respectability and public performance that Black women may have needed to work around to represent themselves and redefine themselves as individuals who were actually worthy of respect.
0: Thank you for expanding on that. I think that That clarifies to me, when I was reading, I was almost worried for her internally about this tension of a public life versus a private life and how one reconciles those things together. But hearing you speak about it, I think really highlights the fact that, of course, the need for that that separation comes from the, the dangers and the pressures of a heteronormative white supremacist society, but also that it was a way of protecting oneself and keeping that private life where you can be authentically yourself when in public you have to or feel as though you have to perform this this aspect of respectability. I think that something that was interesting for me while we were reading is the ways in which as Alice kind of almost moves through her marriages, her ideals of activism and what she wanted to see in the world, and then the realities of her interpersonal relationships start to align a little bit more. How did how do you feel that Alice reconciled the her activism with her personal relationships? Did she ever manage it? It seemed to me like potentially her relationship her marriage with Robert was the closest she came to being in an interpersonal relationship that really kind of mirrored her activist ideals and how her kind of management of that public versus private persona kind of morphed over time?
2: well certainly because she was with him the longest and he too was an activist that relationship that pairing that coupling worked better for her it's difficult to know in her second marriage to henry callis if there was if they were in sync because there was you know we we just don't have much in terms of the record but he was certainly working to achieve things. He later becomes a doctor, and they, their friendship continues, really, until her death. So her relationship with Robert, though, is one in which the pitfalls is that they never have any money. I mean, that's, that's a major problem. And uh, <laughs> so we began to understand how activism and just being poor— even though someone is educated. But for Black people, those two things don't necessarily cohere. So that education doesn't bring about stability, financial stability in society. At the end of the day, it's her husband getting a certain appointment that allows for them to have a certain level of stability, which is interesting because actually he is not the one who has the degrees in the in the higher level of education she does right so talking with you I'm really sort of thinking about that that irony so it means that for her she has quite a bit of sacrifices that she has to make for the good of the race because there are times where she speaks out where people aren't always wanting her to say things But because she keeps the name Dunbar, she still has some access. So she understands that she understands something about gender politics that help her to be able to move and to navigate a society that her relationship to a husband is something having that last name of Dunbar Nelson always helps her in some way to be able to put a little bit of food on the table. But what it does in terms of her lack of access to health care, her lack of access to food, and just being poor and stressed, and, and and I think being a woman who was in a relationship with a man who beat her takes a toll on her body eventually, And she dies younger than she might have had she had a a little bit of a better road that she had been able to travel.
1: Thank you for that amazing answer. Talking a little bit about Dunbar, who, not to spoil anything for those wanting to read the book, is the abuser in question here, Paul Dunbar. We were, we, we really, first of all, we really respect We really appreciated how much care you gave to describing this violence that occurred between Alice and Dunbar, because you did put a lot of care and attention and respect towards domestic violence toward it, but it it really stuck with both of us, I think, the fact that she chose to remain silent and then, you know, needed to rely on his name, as you're pointing out, throughout her life when it came to this violence, and we wanted to explore how that relates to respectability a little bit. So I guess when you think about writing that period of her life, how do you think Alice's public silence about this topic affected or influenced her work?
2: Well, it certainly comes out in some of her writings. And I'll talk about two to three of those short stories where we can see the impact. And it may come out in some of her poetry as well. But in terms of her Silence, I would have to question what it what would confession look like during that particular period. So there may be choices now that didn't exist then. So what do you mean by silence? Is it that she didn't call the police? Well, what would that have looked like for a black woman of a certain class? to call the police who would have been white to show up there for somebody like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, a man that she loved. So silence looks very different then than I believe that it does now. She certainly, as as I talked about, did push back in that marriage, but she was also not the only person who knew that she was being abused. It was very well known amongst the circles of friends, particularly in the Washington, D.C. area, people knew about that. And so, you know, where was the intervention? And again, what would that intervention look like for this particular Black woman and these particular Black people who were of a certain class? And so when we think about respectability during that time period, I want us to also think about what that looks like, at least for her and for her group, class has quite a bit to do with it. So the reputation relates to class. So we might think of class now as maybe having something more to do with one's financial standing and accessibility in that way. It wasn't for Black people during that period. So... Abuse and speaking out, if we think about the blues music during that time, that would have been more related to a working class black community more so than it would have been for this educated class of black people who were trying to uplift the race and to get the country to change the ways in which it thought about black people. Then you just don't say, I am in an abusive relationship. Who do you say that to and what does that mean?
0: That makes a lot of sense for me and I think really helps to contextualize a lot of that period of her life and hopefully does for our listeners as well. And I think that in an extra complicated version of all of this, Paul Dunbar was also famous in his own right and his writings were powerful and really important To the point where Alice, even though she had this relationship with him where she was abused and she did love him, continued to push and share his writings throughout her life for the work that they did outside of her interpersonal relationship with him. I guess continuing on the theme of the politics of silence, moving away from the idea of this domestic abuse, can you talk about a little bit about how you do see the role of silence kind of playing out in Alice's life and and work, Maybe especially how it relates back to her sexuality and kind of what she chose to share versus what she didn't choose to share. Harmony pointed out when we were talking about this a little bit earlier that her... Relationships with women were very well known in her personal life, as well as coming out a little bit in some of her short stories and her other writing, but again, wasn't something that she ever kind of publicly talked about as a platform. So how do you see the politics of silence sort of interplaying in that aspect of her life? Well,
2: she's born into silence and the history of this country for black women and for her being the daughter of an enslaved of a formerly enslaved woman, it's it's of no surprise. Frederick Douglass talks about this in his eighteen forty-five slave narrative, where he says that enslaved individuals have to learn how to keep their mouths shut because if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, then it could mean being sold. It could mean some repercussions in some way. And so again, with her being the daughter of an enslaved woman who, as we think about silence, did not even know about the Emancipation Proclamation. I talk about that. She, she her the people who have been enslaved have been taken away and then they they return to Louisiana. But Silence plays a major role in this country, in the history of this country, and it certainly had a personal impact on her. So silence means keeping private her father's name. (laughs) As I mentioned before, looking at those papers, a couple of different names pop up, who he is, where he is. We don't know according to what has been left to us. If someone did a DNA test, maybe they'd be able to figure it out. But I just sort of wanted to leave it at the record and to think about what did it mean for this woman to carry this silence. Then it's passed down to her, her niece because what they do is they create this story of widowhood. Well, I mean, when do they do these people her sister, when do they become widows? Is after these men disappear. You're not a widow at the time in which a child is conceived. <laughs> so I mean, this is this kind of silence that she learns from birth that there are things that have to be kept private for any number of reasons. And so then it doesn't become a surprise when she keeps private in some ways, her relationship with Paul Lawrence Dunbar, even though people knew about that. It doesn't become a surprise that, that she's having these relationships with women. And that is very well kept. I mean, these women knew how to meet with one another and and how to carry on their relationships, I believe, very strongly. Without other people knowing about it, I, I just don't see much evidence that people were aware of what was going on at these conventions, which are convenient places for romance to occur, or even right there in the Black community in Wilmington, Delaware, it's not clear to me that people knew that she was having this relationship with her principal, for goodness sakes. So these women are born into a lifetime of keeping private what they wanted to keep private. And they did it very well.
1: Thank you for answering that question. I think not being a historian, right, and not being a student from history, it always kind of shocks me when people are even writing about this stuff in their diaries because I look back at history. I know this is so ignorant, but I look back at history and I'm like, oh, it was just a dangerous time to be gay. No one would want to share that with their husbands or write about it in their diaries. So reading this book was important for me because it was reclaiming part of that history, I guess. To shift a little bit, as we wrap up here, we were wondering if there are any lessons that you've learned from Alice Dunbar Nelson's life and that you've taken into your own from your research. And would you be willing to share one or two of those lessons if there are any?
2: Yeah, I actually wrote about this for Miss Magazine a few months ago, which is one of the lessons that I took from her is how she would travel and she had this busy life, but she would figure out ways to escape. And so sometimes it would be by going to see film. She loved film. And, you know, now that COVID isn't killing people in the ways in which it was a couple of years ago. Some of us are going back into the movie theaters and escaping. That was really important for her because we also have to think about what that would also mean for a woman of color to go into a movie theater in terms of the seating arrangements. So if she wasn't passing for white, then she would have to sit someplace where it, it just wasn't the best seating. So I mentioned this because there are ways to escape, but then there are ways in which we simply cannot escape for black women. There was also there were also times where she would take these walks. She would go somewhere. She would travel. She would find a park or something. She loved nature. And so sometimes this would come out in her poetry. Sometimes she would write about it in her diary. And writing in the diary was also another way in which to escape and to think about where she was and to to sort of just really engage with a spiritual, creative side of herself. But Again, we are always reminded that she was a black woman in society. And so for me as a black woman in society, there are ways in which I can escape as well. But there are also these reminders of why escapism is really important for me because of of the challenges of sort of engaging with a society that doesn't necessarily see me as somebody who is deserving of respect. So how she was able to achieve that, how she looked for those moments and those opportunities in the early 1900s informs me in these early 2022, she didn't die until 1935. So we're talking about 100 years you know, difference where she's still doing the same kinds of things that that I find myself trying to navigate and trying to deal with in my own life. And I appreciate having those kinds of lessons.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. I I really appreciate that. There's So much to talk about with this book. It's always hard to pick, you know, 10 to 12 questions to really focus in on. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss about love activism and the respectable life of Alice Dunbar Nelson that we didn't touch on, though? Any major themes or or lessons that you'd like listeners to take away?
2: Well, you know, I just want people to think about it. It is a biographical work, so it does begin with her very early life until her death and so we are able to see how a woman evolved to be married three times to men was a courageous thing to do because women just didn't do that (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I know very few women who would say that they've been married three times now some people may try and then they give up and she always was in the process of trying she Rarely ever gave up on her search for happiness, of satisfaction, of wanting to understand who she was as a woman, as a black woman, as a black woman who loved women. She was always in the process of learning. And I just find that her life to be so beautiful and telling and what she tried to do without probably thinking about that was what she was doing, but in fact she was. And, and so I take it all the way through her, through her death, her failures, her triumphs, her sadness, her happiness, all of it is there in this book, and it's for everyone.
1: Thank you very much. She was definitely a romantic, and I really appreciated the inclusion of that within the book. It felt very hopeful. So we know that you've recently published another book or are going to publish another book, is that correct?
2: Yes, See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure has been published, it came out in February.
1: Okay, well, we wanted to know if you could give our listeners a quick synopsis and we also wanted to know if there are any other forthcoming works that we should keep an eye out for.
2: Yes, well, that book, that book looks at four different women who were very active during the interwar era, so the, that period in the earlier 1900s. And those women include Yolanda Du Bois, who was the daughter of W.E.B. Du Bois, Lena Horn, Minnie Memphis, and comedian Mom's Mabley. And I wanted to look at four different women. Yolanda Du Bois, as the daughter of of W. E. B. Du Bois, this very well known, very well respected intellectual of the of the time. He died in the nineteen sixties. She was someone who lived a somewhat isolated life, and she had access that many other Black people did not have access to in terms of education and and. Knowledge of matters that were taking place throughout the United States and the world because of her father. So, what did it mean to be a black woman and to define who she was during a certain period of of her life that I look at? And Minnie Memphis and Moms Mabley were two women of the working class, both of whom were from the South, and both of whom through their art, presented ways of thinking about Black life that could be funny, but also could be, you know, not the the kind of music or laughter that uh, <laughs> Alice Dunbar Nelson and her kind would have <laughs> agreed with. Moms Mabley's jokes were censored, and Memphis Minnie sang about men, and men and men, so, <laughs> and, and sex, a whole lot of it, and then, of course, Lena Horn, who's known as being a more classy kind of woman, her life was just so interesting to me, but the point is that these four women, even though they did not know each other, in fact, they were all known at some point by Langston Hughes. So I do have a chapter in the book about Langston Hughes and his relationship with black women, who he loved. He loved black people. He had a special kind of love for black women. But these women were interested in defining their lives on their own terms. And so that is the pleasure that I had as writing about them, but also in trying to understand how they defined pleasure. That's what that book is about. So you ask if I have anything else forthcoming. I am working on a couple of projects that probably will not be available, certainly not this year, but maybe over the course of the next two years, I'll probably have two or three projects that are available. So look at my website.
0: Absolutely. And you can find Dr. Green's website in the description of this episode, my friends. So make sure that you go check it out. See Me Naked is next up on my TBR. And I'm really, I'm extra excited now to read it hearing you describe it. Tara, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really wonderful conversation. And I learned so much about Alice Dunbar Nelson's life from your book. And I really appreciated that. So thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, we'll see you all next week bye thank you
1: (laughs) don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website Book. Dot club and clicking Read Along with the Show. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.